Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I assure you, this podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Here's a plug for intelligent speech. Hey everyone, my name's Sebastian Major, and I am the host of the Our Fake History Podcast. I'm Rebecca Larson with the Tudors Dynasty Podcast. This is Greta Harden. I'm the host of the History of American Food. Hi, my name is Benjamin Jacobs. I'm the host of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Hello. I'm Anton. And I'm Rick. We're the Curiosity of a Child podcast. I'm David Montgomery, host of the Siakla. Hi, I'm Bree from Pontifax. My name is Roberto Toro, and I'm the host of Czar Power and the History of Sacadvelo, Georgia. Hello, and welcome to Totalis Rankium. I'm Jamie. And I'm Rob, and this is letting you know that we will be speaking at Intelligent Speech. I am looking forward to speaking at Intelligent Speech 2023. And I will be speaking at Intelligent Speech Online this year. Mark your calendars for this November 4th. Intelligent Speech, the online conference for history fans by history podcasters. It's a three-ring circus of fascinating content with around 24 hours of live presentations and roundtables happening in four digital rooms. This year is all about contingencies. Times when history meets the unexpected. The topic of my keynote address is no contingencies, stories of historical figures who did not have a backup plan. All about the Tudors and their contingency plans. Because, let's be real, they had a lot of them. So what are we going to be doing? We're going to be telling the story of what happens when you're starving in a city under siege for months, surrounded by food, food that you can't eat as it's your life's work, food that's more important than you are. So go to intelligencespeechonline.com to get your tickets. We'll see everybody on November 4th. All right. So, yeah, if you guys would be interested, please buy some tickets for Intelligent Speech. It's going to be a good time. You can get that early bird special and uh, use code W2W to get an additional 10% off. And it uh, picks something back to me, so that's always good. This week, we only have one patron worthy of honor and praise, because it's been pretty recent since I recorded. So, all the same, I think we can all put our hands together and praise the achievements of Wolfgang, who shall be known from henceforward as Prince Bishop Wolfgang, mailed right hand of the king slash pope. Thank you to Wolfgang and all of our donors and patrons and uh, everyone who helped me out on GoFundMe. You're all so fantastic. And uh, if you're out there and uh, you're listening and you want to help out, but you don't have any money, I definitely understand not having money. 
go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever they're calling themselves these days, or whatever podcatcher you use, and uh, leave a review. It's all appreciated. And if you leave a review, shooting me an email wouldn't be amiss, because there's so many places to leave reviews now. I don't know where they're all going at this point. But just because I'm not seeing them doesn't mean other people aren't seeing them and they're not helping people find the show, because they absolutely are. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all so much for your help. And uh, let's get on with the show. Are any bold enough to maintain that the priests of the Lord all over the world are to take their law from monsters of guilt like these? Men branded in ignominy and ignorant alike of things human and divine. If, Holy Fathers, we are bound to weigh in the balance the lives, the morals, and the attainments of the humblest candidates for the priestly office, how much more ought we to look to the fitness of him who aspires to be the Lord and Master of all priests? Yet how would it fare with us if it should happen that the man the most deficient in all these virtues, unworthy of the lowest place in the priesthood, should be chosen to fill the highest place of all? What would you say of such a one when you see him sitting upon the throne, glittering in purple and gold? Must he not be the Antichrist sitting in the temple of God and showing himself as God? Quote from a speech by Bishop Arnulf of Orléans, as written in the History of the Christian Church, Volume 4, by Philip Schaeff, and as read by Dustin from the Alexander Standard Podcast. Everyone's right, and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story, from the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 92, Atonian Interference. In the last episode, we looked at how foreign policy was intertwined with the gradual evolution of the papal electoral system. The basis of the system is a letter that says all bishops are supposed to be elected by the assembled clergy and laity of an area. And this is for all bishops, not just the Pope. And the specifics are very vague. Interference in this process by secular authorities was an issue from the very beginning, though initially the issues revolved around how to respond to popes getting killed by the authorities. Once Christianity became the dominant religion of the empire, the authorities began either selecting popes outright or at least arbitrating disputes that arose. This de facto right to interfere moved to the Germanic kings of Italy after the empire's fall, before once again being taken up by the Eastern Roman emperors after Italy's conquest. This is not to say that the popes were puppets. The Eastern Romans entirely lacked the resources for that kind of control. Rather, they asserted a right to arrest popes and refuse electoral results, which was sort of observed only in extremities. Ultimately, Italians turned out to not be too happy about Eastern Roman rule in general. And while some dealt with this by welcoming in the Lombards, those in central Italy consolidated under papal leadership to break away from the empire, turning to the Franks for external support. Initially, the Franks protected the independence of the papal territories, but internal divisions initially between the clergy and the aristocracy, and later just within the aristocracy, meant that the Franks were inexorably pulled into participation in papal politics. During the chaos that followed the empire's fall, commonly called the Seculum Obscurum or the Pornocracy, 
Aristocratic fractions dominated the papacy, with the city ultimately finding stability under the dynasty of Theophylact, his wife Theodora, their daughter Marosia, and Alberic, each of whom selected which popes they wanted to win the elections and then used the papacy to control patronage and create a somewhat coherent loyalty system in the city. I finished this all by suggesting that this system was ended by the invading Germans under Otto the Great. Now, I will stand by that assertion generally, but the specifics are a little more complicated, and of course the invasion took several decades. So, can't blame a guy for some dramatic flair, but let's go complicate that. Anyway, the specifics of that complication will be the topic of today's episode. Yes, we are finally doing it. We are starting our speedrun of the papacy between the arrival of Otto and the election of Gregory VII. We have an awful lot to cover in only a few episodes, and at the end is one of the biggest slap fights in European history, so let's get to it. To understand how Otto did or did not end the pornocracy, and when, we need to go back to Spoleto. As we covered in my prize-winning second season of this podcast, the Dukes of Spoleto had a long and tumultuous relationship with the papacy and the empire. Mostly in that season, I described the Gadeshi family, also known as the Widonids in the literature. Our story of the Gadeshi ended with a bit of a whimper when Guy IV was murdered by his page, Alberic, who then took over Spoleto. Alberic's move was approved by <coughs> King Berengar, but more importantly, he had a working relationship and alliance with Theophylact, a Frankish count who was the leader of the Roman militia, as well as Adelbert the Rich of Tuscany. Together with Theophylact's wife, Theodora, this group had a heavy influence on Roman as well as wider Italian politics. This clique soon moved into opposition against Berengar, who was useless, and they prevented him from entering Rome and being crowned emperor, at least at first. Ultimately, he would be crowned, but that's not actually even all that important. This alliance yielded a ton of benefits for all parties, and was sealed by the marriage of Alberic to Theophylact's daughter, Marosia. While Alberic was driven from the city and murdered in 924, before his death he had a number of children with Marosia, including the future Alberic II. And after the death of her parents, Marosia was able to assume de facto control over the city. The family seems to have lost control of Spoleto at this point. How or why, and even when, isn't entirely clear to me. When the succession of Spoleto reemerges, it's being controlled by King Hugh. Whatever the story, the key thing is that Marosia ruled Rome for many years and herself formed an alliance with King Hugh, ultimately marrying him. You'll recall that, in the most awkward marriage ceremony in history, Elbrick II flipped out, slapped the king, and turned his mother's private mob against her and the king. Hugh fled, Marozia was tossed in prison, and the pope, who happened to be Elbrick's brother, John XI, was also thrown in prison for good measure. Despite Hugh's power in the rest of Italy, Elbrick ruled Rome quite stably from 932 to 954, thus long surviving his would-be stepdad. Albert II did not get a lot of good press from our chroniclers, mainly because they all hated the dynasty he was associated with. But also they don't seem to have a lot that is bad to say about him personally. Sure, he was a corrupt ruler who had popes on a tight leash, but he's also often portrayed as rebelling against the sexual impropriety and corruption of his mother. None of the popes in his lifetime did anything that was really blasphemous in terms of theological pronouncements, and domestically he made a number of reforms that really stabilized Rome. This was done by building out the system of church patronage we discussed over the last few episodes, by establishing monasteries and subsidizing the churches in the city via land grants. Basically establishing the system of aristocratic justice and clerical bureaucracy, and firming up military control of Rome's territories. 
this is all the stuff we've been discussing over the last few episodes. Albrecht had a big hand in solidifying this picture. And his long rule meant that these sort of institutions became stabilized before things sort of, well, you'll see what happens next. This power consolidation and reorganization seems to have been his main preoccupation. And he sometimes let the Pope steer the ship in terms of non-Italian affairs and in terms of theological issues. For example, Pope Stephen VIII was heavily involved in French politics via a letter-writing campaign in which he sought to support Louis IV against the rising Robertian family of nobles via threats of excommunication. Ultimately, however, Italian affairs intervened. We aren't really solid on the specifics, but it seems that King Hugh had developed a plan to assassinate Albrecht, and that involved a number of bishops. Stephen may have been implicated and may have been slightly tortured to death by accident by Albrecht. All very embarrassing, really. Anyway, plenty more popes where that came from. <laughs> to expand on this all just a little further, the popes of Albrecht's lifetime were John XI, his brother, then Leo VII, Stephen VIII, Marinus II, and Egyptus II. As I've said, alterations to the government of Rome were Albrecht's job, and international relations were also Albrecht's job, so the room for maneuver for the popes was really very limited. They oversaw some day-to-day -day operations of the clergy and probably had a hand in education, but mostly what they are noted for is administration of the wider church hierarchy, which is to say the archbishops and bishops and the letter-writing campaigns that kept all that stuff coordinated. This is, of course, a hierarchy that I've gone out of my way to point out was not really under papal control at this time. It was all about persuasion. So what this looked like on the ground is that the Pope spent all his time writing letters to various foreign and church leaders and serving to arbitrate or persuade in disputes. This was basically all the Popes could do. The Popes may have taken on a higher international profile than one might expect, given their reputation in this period. The Popes arbitrated bishopal elections that were disputed, moved dioceses around in new archbishoprics developing in the north and east of Europe, and attempted to protect monasteries from domination by bishops. The popes often chose to appoint reform-minded clerics from the Cluniac school in these disputes, possibly sympathizing with the goal of theological purity pushing against aristocratic domination. This did a lot to focus the already existing tendency for reform-minded individuals to see the papacy as a source of reform, but again, it wasn't the sole focus yet, and those who knew about Roman politics knew the deep-seated corruption ongoing there. This is a period, after all, still being described as the pornocracy. At the same time that popes were engaged in these diplomatic efforts, any diplomat seeking serious interventions from the popes had to go through Albrecht, especially if it affected Italian affairs. For example, when the Byzantine emperor tried to get his son confirmed as patriarch, and no one in the East would go for it, John XI gave his blessing in return for a marriage alliance between the emperor and Albrecht. More pertinently to our story, the rising three-way contest for northern Italy between Hugh, Berengar II, and Otto of Germany was keenly watched by Albrecht. Albrecht worked to play Hugh against Berengar for many years. When Berengar started to come out on top, Albrecht started working to establish friendly relations with Otto, while also very clearly not approving the idea of Otto intervening in Italy directly. Notably, when Otto sent emissaries to discuss his reception in Rome after his first invasion in 951, Pope Egyptus turned them away. Albrecht was, in short, working to establish the independence of Rome with a stable domestic status quo that had not previously existed, pulling elements from different periods in papal history to set up a more stable domestic administration and relying on those different elements as precedent. He worked to ensure an independent Rome with an efficient clerical bureaucracy allied to the nobility and stable rule of law within the city. 
Notably, however, Elbrick never tried to undermine the main focus of the political order in the city, namely the idea, even if somewhat farcical, that the Pope ruled. Whether he didn't want to or felt he couldn't, this long period of stable rule would have been an opportunity to move the popes back to a spiritual role and out of politics, and put himself forward as a king, or dictator, or duke, or whatever. And this is something that happened in pretty much every other Italian city or region. But it didn't happen here. For whatever reason, Albrecht left the pope in place. Indeed, he worked them into his succession plans, as we shall see. In terms of papal electoral precedent, Albrecht, just like his predecessors, violated pretty much every precedent, thus showing how weak the electoral structure was. Popes were elected who were already bishops, an act called translating and something that was deeply legal by long precedent. He involved the aristocracy in elections, which was, at least according to some precedents, legal, and according to other precedents, was very legal. He campaigned for papal candidates he chose, money exchanged hands in the process, and he often discussed papal succession before the old pope was dead. All very, very wrong. By the time Egyptus sent away the Etonian diplomats, which we just discussed, Alberic and the pope were both already old men. In 955, Egyptus and Alberic both passed away within only a few months of each other. Famously, Alberic gathered the nobles and clergy of Rome to his deathbed and made them all swear to elect his son, Octavianus, as the next pope. This they swore, and after Alberic passed, the deed was done. Octavianus, then, is the first pope of this episode proper, as he is considered by historians to be the first pope of the Etonian period and the last pope of the pornocracy. I have to say, this is a tad bit unfair to Alberic II and his popes. They all seem to be regarded as relatively decent popes, if fairly quiet. Still, any timeline of the papal pornocracy that didn't include Octavianus, a.k.a. John XII, would probably be seen as incomplete, so the other popes just kind of get lunked in by uh, default. John's rule set a number of precedents, arguably in the worst way possible. We've covered him before in this show, so I'm not going not spoiling anything when I say his reputation amongst the chroniclers is garbage. He's accused of every crime from blasphemy to violent incestuous rape, though most of these charges come to us from Leoprand of Cremona, who is, oh, unreliable. It is, however, fair to say that Octavianus was a spoiled prince of the secular aristocracy who got sort of rushed into the clergy when his father started feeling sick, a few years before Albert's death. He also may have been as young as 18 when he was elected pope and took the name of John XII. Trying to combine the roles of secular strongman dictator and spiritual leader was never going to be an easy task, but that was the task his father left him at an age when most modern young men are busy trying to work out how to impress girls by shotgunning beer. Pro tip, fellas, you can't. Rapid beer consumption and dating are different skills. Whatever the truth of the accusations against him, I think we can construct a more neutral narrative from the several chroniclers in terms of a political explanation of what happened. Upon taking the throne of St. Peter, John slash Octavianus attempted to exert his authority, but found that managing the aristocracy as his father had was difficult. He was not entirely hopeless. One of his first moves was to lead an army south to try and bring some of the southern Lombard lords into line. And while no major battle was fought, John was able to use military leverage and diplomacy to achieve a good outcome for the papacy. He also undertook some liturgical and church reforms that church people seem to think we're a good idea, but which don't really concern us today, because I'm not a church people. All the same, John was in a difficult position, with aristocratic instability at home, and Berengar II once again consolidating power to the north. Trying to kill two birds with one stone, John reversed his father's policy towards Otto. 
Far from being kept at arm's length, the East Frankish king was invited south, whereupon he was crowned emperor of a new German-Roman Empire kind of thing, as we have discussed several times. Afterwards, Otto magnanimously reaffirmed the earlier treaties between Louis the Pious and the Pope in the form of a speech-slash-document called the Diploma Atonianum. In many ways, this document is a barely comprehensible remix of the other treaties. It guarantees the insane territorial claims of the era of Charlemagne, in which the Pope claimed Sardinia and Venice, while also insisting that, as the new emperor, Otto would have the right to approve papal elections. How those elections would be conducted was basically just to say that the Constitutio Romanorum was still in force, which was itself kind of a mess of a document. That done, Otto left a small garrison to help John maintain order against the aristocracy and headed out after Berengar. As we've covered earlier, Berengar was destroyed with comical ease due to his utter lack of friends or money or native wit. John may now have realized why his father had been so standoffish to Otto. Northern Italy was now clearly dominated by this terrifying German-Roman Empire, something which was a threat to the Pope's power and independence. John attempted to tack in the other direction by seeking an alliance with the Eastern Roman Empire and the Magyars of all people. Of course, the letters to these scary foreigners were intercepted by Otto's agents, many of whom were in the city, in that garrison he had left to help John maintain order. The result was that the city blew up in a civil war, as supporters of Otto and supporters of John fortified different areas of the city and its environs. This is about the time Otto swung back through. Initially, John showed up in armor and led troops in repulsing Otto's forces, playing the aristocrat. And then, in a turn of events I can only describe as cartoonish, John grabbed the treasury and fled the city, leaving everyone else to be occupied by a bunch of very annoyed Germans. Otto, who was trying to imitate Charlemagne here, peacefully occupied the city and presented the image of someone working through legitimate channels. A council was called and accused John of a huge list of colorful crimes, accusations which are a major part of the basis for his current reputation. Again, how much we should trust these accusations, given the context we get them from, I leave to you. John was condemned in absentia and deposed, though this violated an existing norm that no one could judge the Pope but God, something that had been established by Charlemagne. In any case, Leo VIII was elected in place of John by the council. The council, convened by Otto and guarded by lots of Germans with pointy things. The choice of Leo is a telling insight into what was going on here, I think. Who was Leo? Well, he was a layman, but he was an, a Roman aristocrat and the head of the publicly funded scribal school in the clerical administration. So at the surface level, he seems to have been a good candidate. He was a cleric. He was an aristocrat. From Otto's point of view, he might have been seen as sort of an insider, but he was also kind of being pulled from nowhere, so surely he would be grateful to Otto. Certainly, these might have seemed like good qualifications to Otto. But how did Otto know Leo? What was the basis of their relationship? Well, Leo was the guy John sent to Otto as a messenger to reassure him that John was still friendly. In other words, he was the first guy Otto met from Rome after he decided to replace John. That's about it. <laughs> he was there. Needless to say, this is only slightly better than picking a person entirely at random. As someone who was not a priest, Leo was rapidly promoted through the ranks of the clergy on the day before his coronation. Then Otto's assembly of hairy Germans declared him Pope. Despite all this, Leo doesn't have a bad reputation historically. He tried to be conciliatory, and certainly he knew the political mood in the city better than Otto. 
But to the Romans, he was obviously Otto's creature, being imposed by force through a highly illegitimate political process. One could argue, of course, that no papal election had been really above board for decades at this point, and the unwritten electoral process could hardly be called a system. And yet, as is so often the case, the Roman attitude seems to have been, sure, the political system is very corrupt, but it's our corruption and it's legitimate to us. Also worth noting, John had made off with the papal treasury, so he had a lot of money on hand, which means that things were just not going to go smoothly for Leo or Otto. John's first move after bravely running away was to attempt to foment a revolt against the Germans with all that money he had. He was successful in that he caused a riot that took Otto and his army by surprise in the city. Unfortunately, it was just a riot, and in an era before tear gas and rubber bullets, riots were put down with swords and spears, and uh, there were enough troops in the city, given that Otto had his entire army with him, that uh, this riot didn't get further than a lot of dead Romans. Otto left a garrison and returned home, at which point John raised an army and returned to Rome, which he easily took, possibly due to the families of all the people who had just been stabbed. He then mutilated some of his enemies, attempted to reconcile with Otto, which is an odd choice, and then apparently died during the act of coitus. The stories differ. He either had a heart attack or was shoved out of an open window by a jealous husband. Take your pick. Obviously, I lean towards defenestration as the preferred option. Defenestration is always the preferred option. Apart from that ending, the version of John that I've presented is one rather devoid of color, but he's kind of an important figure to our story and how we feel about what's about to happen. Otto's supporters had a very different version, and they wrote all of the surviving chronicles, essentially. So if you read a primary source, you're going to read about how John was compared with Elagabalus and other historical monsters. But then these people were literally being paid by Otto. Otto's narrative was that the papacy had lost its way and was dangerously corrupt as a result of domination by the local aristocrats. They needed a strong hand to get things back in order. The normal electoral process could not be relied upon without a strong and steady outside force to correct for these unfortunate influences. Otto's propaganda would claim that Otto's intervention was necessary to purify the papacy because John was just a completely insane, off-his-rocker, sexually depraved lunatic. Was John a sexually depraved lunatic who needed to be deposed by Otto? Maybe, but let's consider a few other points from the Chronicles. John's ability to repeatedly raise local rebellions indicates that he at least had some measure of popularity. Sure, much of that support was based on money, but it's not like the German army came south entirely because they were on a holy mission. Armies need to get paid, either directly in cash or in terms of food, promises of plunder, or in the form of land. That doesn't mean that you can just basically bribe everyone entirely. John probably had a strong base of support that was inflamed by the insult of outside interference in Roman independence, which is a longstanding tradition by this point. And in any case, there was no denying that John was legitimately elected. If John wasn't legitimate, what did that say about Otto's title as the German Emperor of the Romans? John had crowned him, after all. So take from that what you will. For my part, I'm often willing to give credence to an individual's ideology in shaping their understanding of available actions. It's possible that John, a teenager, had done his share of partying once he found himself ruling a small country. Maybe Otto found out about this during his invasion and felt the need to correct this behavior. Maybe that was there at some level in Otto's head. However, Otto was also used to directly controlling clerical appointments for political expediency. And it seems to me that the cynical politics of these events is really right there to be seen in this case. 
Otto was invading an area in anarchy where religion was one of the few unifying factors and where there were few remaining benefits like public lands to distribute and reward local loyalty. Remember, Berengar had sold the farm. There was nothing left for the king to control from a legal standpoint. Otto needed legitimacy and local buy-in from the patronage networks of Italy, which meant that he needed to control local governments. Rome's local government was the, one of the most powerful in Italy, and it was occupied by a teenager without a firm base of support or much life experience. All the same, Otto completely lacked a feeling or understanding of how local politics worked in terms of function or identity. His actions turned a somewhat isolated, spoiled rich kid into a rallying cry for local elites. Otto's allies subsequently had to go into propaganda overdrive to try and cover up for these mistakes in smearing John's image in the historical record. To be clear, I don't think John was a great pope or leader, and he probably was some flavor of obnoxious. I just don't think he was deposed for invoking Zeus while playing dice. Otto and Leo may have hoped that John's fateful trip out of a window might have resolved the problems that they had created, but the Roman clergy and aristocracy did not, at this point, simply accept Leo. They, in fact, elected a new pope, Benedict V. Otto did not accept this, and in fact besieged the city until starvation set in, which I hear is a great way to make friends and influence people. The Romans ultimately turned Benedict over, and he was sent into exile in Germany. Otto made the aristocracy all swear allegiance to Leo before heading home. This, oddly enough, worked for a minute. The rest of Leo's reign seems to have been relatively quiet. However, the historical record here is worse than a mess. It is a dumpster fire. Leo seems to have issued a number of papal bulls at this time granting concessions to Otto, but some or all of these bulls are considered forgeries, or at least documents that were heavily altered, such that their original intent is hard to discern. This was done for reasons we will come back to in future episodes, but suffice it to say here that in terms of the precedence of the papacy, Leo's rule is at best a series of massive norm violations, and at worst, Leo was forced to give Otto full control over elections. But honestly, we can't take any precedence from it because of the issues of historical document manipulation. So it's just a big question mark. Subsequent popes tend to view John and Benedict as legitimate, and Leo's initial election as illegitimate, but ultimately concede that he was the sole pope from 964, when John died. Unfortunately for Leo, he died in 965, so his period of legitimacy is... brief? I'm wondering how they will judge this over on Pontifex. I'm looking forward to it. But anyway. In any case, after Leo's death, a delegation of Roman nobles went to Germany to ask Otto to allow Benedict to resume his papacy. By all accounts, Benedict was a chill dude and had made lots of friends in Germany, so I actually give it even odds that this might have worked. A similar thing is actually going to happen in a few minutes, you'll see. Unfortunately for everyone involved, Benedict happened to die by the time the delegation arrived. Just natural causes, this is the Middle Ages after all. Otto's representatives suggested to the delegation that they instead elect Bishop John Crescentius, a Roman noble who had done his time in the clerical hierarchy and was a worthy candidate by all accounts. He seemed to make sense. Of course, one of Otto's representatives at this meeting was a certain Leoprand of Cremona, so great. Uh, and the records vociferously praise John Crescentius as the best thing since sliced bread. In any case, the delegation took this suggestion back to Rome, and John was unanimously elected in 965. Nonetheless, despite my um, air quotes there around suggestion and unanimously, things are actually looking somewhat stable. Leo was fully accepted for a year, 
and John XIII was a compromise candidate everyone could live with. It's also worth saying that Benedict was not some aristocratic shill. By all accounts, he was a really learned and respected cleric. So it's possible that the clergy of the city was willing at this point to accept Otto's line that he was only here to clean up John XII's mess. So maybe there's a chance that this new pope, John XIII, will be able to balance the needs of all these different parties. Let's see. Pope John XIII's actions as pope are portrayed by the chroniclers, who are friendly to this Otto-approved candidate, as popular and sustained campaign of rooting out corruption in the city. Reading between the lines, it's widely accepted by historians that John's policy was to stock the clergy with clerics loyal to Otto and himself, thereby undermining the power of the Roman aristocracy. Or should I say the Roman old aristocracy? Otto probably would have been fine with either interpretation of this situation. Unfortunately, it turns out that the clerics that John found that would be both loyal to John and Otto were all members of John's own family, the Crescenti. Odd that. And uh, the Crescenti had become sort of the unofficial leaders of the new aristocracy at this time. I'm willing to consider here that there's sort of a little column A, a little column B going on here. John wasn't some obvious rando like Leo, and he would become a renowned theologian. So I, I don't think he was just straight up cynically cleaning house for, to build up his own power base. He continued the recent trend favored by Otto of patronage for Cluniac reformers. Their interests were put forward across Northern Europe in the Pope's more diplomatic guise, and some ended up employed in the city itself. It's possible that John was genuinely firing people he saw as corrupt and was just maybe a little naive about his own family. All the same, he undeniably displaced the Theophylact clan at this time as the leading aristocrats of Rome in favor of his own Crescenti family. Podcast footnote. At this point, I should probably note that the Theophylacts, somewhere along the line, probably fairly early on, had taken control of a small city called Tusculum, some 30 miles from the Roman Forum, but within the Agro Romano. Technically, the original Theophylact was Count of Tusculum. Now, at this time, having been displaced by John from their status as leading political figures in the city, the family retreated to their properties in and around this small holding out in the Agro Romano, and so historians start calling the family the Tusculoni from here out. So, the Theophylacts are the Tusculoni. As the Tiscoloni were the leading figures of the old aristocrats, just discussed by Wickham, and as many of those families suffered similar fates at this time, being displaced out to their agricultural holdings outside the city, this is considered sort of a tipping point, essentially, in the great transition between the old aristocracy and the new aristocracy. We will see it wasn't a done thing yet. It's not like this all happened overnight. The old aristocracy had been in the process of buying estates far outside the city for some time, thus making space for the new aristocracy to start rising in power. And because of their political influence and their connections, the Theophylacts aren't gone yet. Still, this is a notable departure point where the Tuscaloni are being replaced by the Crescenti. End podcast footnote. What's less open to interpretation than the moral valence of John's reforms is the response of the Roman aristocracy. Within a few months of his accession, the Theophylact-slash-Tuscaloni-led militias joined with external enemies and staged a coup. John was imprisoned, but escaped, and joined up with the wonderfully named Pandolf Ironhead of Benevento to march back into the city. The Beneventan army linked up with a counter-uprising led by the Pope's Crescenti-backed militia and overturned the coup. John was supposedly preparing to be lenient as a conciliatory gesture when who would turn up outside the city but Otto with a huge army offering to help? 
Now that he maybe didn't see any point in being conciliatory, the Pope had all the leaders of the Tuscaloni militia hung, and the leader of the coup ritually humiliated and sent to prison in Germany. In the Chronicles, this comes off as him suddenly not feeling the need to be lenient, but with the giant army at his back. But I do wonder if Otto didn't force the issue. But you're going to be lenient to these people? Nah. Hangings. That's the way to go. In any case, this act had consequences. These retaliations were seen as harsh, and the violence will only escalate from here. With his rules secured, John continued his earlier policies of cleaning up slash securing the loyalty of the clerical hierarchy. The supposedly corrupt and now militarily defeated Tuscaloni family members were moved out of their positions, and the ahem non-corrupt people, who just happened to be Crescenti family members, were brought in. And as we discussed in earlier episodes, the system whereby the clergy and nobility were kept in line by networks of landholding, officeholding, and patronage were all shored up. He also was involved as an arbiter in the very long negotiations with the Eastern Roman Empire that eventually resulted in the marriage of Otto II with Empress Theophanu. Whatever the opinions of the Tuscaloni, the other aristic families, or the average person on the street, it's undeniable that John's rule was relatively stable after that one hiccup and productive. He had managed to build himself a sustainable power base that persisted without major formations of imperial troops, at least while he was alive. This does not mean that the issues in the city had been resolved, but so long as the Crescenti and the Empire were on the same side, they seemed unassailable. Inevitably, in 972, John died. The imperial faction within the city elected Benedict VI as pope. Benedict was another perfectly reasonable candidate, but was half-German and was not a member of the Crescenti clan. When Otto I then died himself in 973, and the German Roman Empire was distracted by internal issues related to the succession, the Crescenti clan took this opportunity to overthrow Benedict and try and cement local dominance in the city. A man from a local family, known to history as Boniface VII, was elected at that point. He probably had Benedict imprisoned and strangled. However, John XIII had genuinely managed to build up something of a pro-imperial faction in the city, and when an imperial representative showed up to rescue Benedict and found that he was a little too late, riots broke out. Pandolf Ironhead, an ally of the Etonians, also marched into the city, at which point Boniface pulled John, plundered the entire Roman treasury, and fled to Eastern Roman territory. Calling a mulligan, the Romans elected another Benedict, this time Benedict VII, whose main achievement was calling a synod that banned simony. Podcast footnote. What is simony? It's going to come up a lot, so let's get into it. In the Book of Acts, a certain Simon Magus, magician, is impressed by the miracles being performed by the apostles. He converts to Christianity, apparently in an initial attempt to figure out their trick. Ultimately, he approaches Peter and offers money in exchange for the apostolic powers. Peter is suitably unimpressed with this attempt to buy divine favor, and gives him a thorough talking to. In the original text, Simon repents. In the apocryphal Acts of Peter, a more amusing story is told. Possibly sometime after the earlier interaction, Simon shows up in Rome claiming to also have holy powers. Simon and Peter challenge each other to a miracle off. In my mind, this involves putting down flattened cardboard boxes in the form, having their bros separate out the crowd, and putting a tape on the boombox. Returning to the text, Simon starts flying around the form. Peter, unimpressed, prays that God take this power away, and Simon drops out of the sky. In my mind, the Wilhelm scream plays, along with that cartoon bonk noise as he hits the ground. Or maybe a splat sound. Suitably unimpressed, the entire crowd then stones Simon Magus to death. 
Over the years, Simon Magus showed up in a large number of apocryphal works. It is indeed possible that a historical Simon may have existed, though the fact that these works are either short on details or are fantastical in nature makes it hard to glean a full understanding of what was really going on here. Historians and biblical experts tend to agree that this proliferation was a way to comment on other later heterodox movements percolating within the early church in the days before the conversion of the empire, when all such divisions within the church had to be resolved by persuasion and not by fiat. It's also possible that Simon was a stand-in for Paul, who was not particularly popular amongst Christianity's old guard. I have trouble buying this theory because, you know, they call him Simon and not Paul, which seems hard to confuse, even if everyone then changed the names later when they decided they liked Paul now. It just seems unlikely that everyone would have gotten the memo, like there should be some document that says it the other way. Regardless of the earlier context, the story of Simon has one pretty straightforward lesson that's going to be important for our story. You can't buy divine favor. How you do get divine favor is certainly something that's up for conversation, as we will see when we get to Martin Luther, but for most of the Middle Ages, a narrow view of this lesson was taken, with the main rule being understood as you can't buy into apostolic succession, which is to say you can't buy church offices. Doing that isn't just illegal under canon law, it's a massive sin, and this is a prohibition that seems to be written into the text of the Bible itself. So when Benedict banned simony, that seemed like a pretty straightforward win. He was banning bribery and church office selection. But then the rules against simony weren't new, right? Theoretically, they are literally in the Bible. No one held synods reminding everybody that murder was bad. So what was Benedict trying to do here? It's plausible that, because the prohibition on murder is fairly clear, while the story of Simon Magus is at least a little bit metaphorical, the church might feel the need for a clear, legally understandable statement that the practice was banned in no uncertain terms and not leave it down to interpretation, clarifying that the story had specific legal ramifications that were to be enforced from here on out. I don't really buy this. There were earlier actions against simony. One can very cynically read this as a justification of the continued purges of the noble families within the clergy, or even an attempt to appeal to the Cluniac reformers. But I think attributing no reformist motive to the ban on simony at this council is too far in the other direction. I think some attempt at reform was going on, but it was very much in the context of this ongoing faction fight and clerical purgation. One last note before we move on. The idea that you can't buy God's favor is going to come back into our story again and again. As I mentioned earlier, some guy named Martin something was really into it, so you might want to take a note of this whole idea going forwards. End podcast footnote. Whatever else you can say for Benedict VII, he managed to sustainably hold office unlike many of his predecessors, which makes Otto II's subsequent actions a bit odd. You see, Benedict and his predecessors in today's episode have mostly been Roman clerics from Roman aristocratic families. And while this has certainly not guaranteed stability, it worked out for Benedict. And yet, after Benedict's death, Otto II tried a different trick. Rather than trying to encourage the election of a local leader he could work with via manipulating the electoral process, Otto II just tried to impose a complete outsider as pope by fiat. At first, he tried with Mariolus of Cluny, a key leader of the reform movement, but Mariolus refused the offer. Instead, Otto imposed Peter Capanova, a bishop in Pavia, as pope under the papal name of John XIV. This event is so interesting on a bunch of levels that I wish we had more material to go on as to why this happened. The standard story from the German side of the Alps is that Otto II was a pious man who was very convinced of the righteousness of the reform movement, and so he tried to put in place someone he could trust to rule in a reformist way. 
Peter Kapanova wasn't some distant Roman aristocrat. He was a trusted member of Otto's inner circle, his main point man in Italy, as it happens. And so this move would put someone in charge who Otto knew would do the right things, but who had experience of Italian politics. Conversely, this entire thing can be seen as an attempt to make the appointment of the Pope into an imperial right, which may be why Mariolus refused the offer. To be fair to Otto, there was existing precedent for this in any case. Whatever Otto thought was going to happen, what did happen was that Otto got malaria and died, leaving his empire in the hands of his young son and a regency headed by Theophanu, but strongly contested by Henry II of Bavaria. With the German-Roman Empire again in an unstable regency headed by a foreign princess, German troops and attention pulled back north of the Alps, and the Romans pretty much immediately deposed John in favor of, wait for it, Boniface, who came back from Constantinople to try and milk Rome for more money. Oh, and he also had John killed, too. We don't have any records of what happened in the next 11 months, but at the end of that time, an angry mob stormed the Lateran, dragged Boniface into the streets, stripped him naked, beat him to death, and left his corpse in the middle of the street in front of the palace to be eaten by animals. Some monks eventually snuck the body out for burial in the middle of the night. Six Semper Boniface, I suppose? We also have very little information about the election that followed. A local cleric who called himself Pope John XV was elected under conditions that seem odd and yet are not explained. At this point, the Crescenti family dominated the city, with their paterfamilias being dubbed the patrician of the city. He was named Crescentius, so I'm not going to bother trying to individuate these people. At the same time, as all this was going on, Empress Theophanu took up residence, and it seems that even the Italian aristocrats were somewhat afraid of that woman. So while John had little domestic power in Rome, he had some capacity for action in terms of the Pope's confessional responsibilities, at least so long as they were to the liking of the Empress, who was there to enforce reform. Now both John and Theophanu seem to have had a reformist agenda, or at least they did when it came to West Francia. A bit of background. In West Francia, a certain Hugh Capet was attempting to settle his new Robertian dynasty onto the throne, uh, sorry, the Capetian dynasty, after a few false starts from his ancestors. The rule of the Robertians had been interrupted several times by the return of members of the Carolingian house, direct descendants of Charlemagne. But by this time, the Carolingians were basically all dead, with two exceptions. One was Charles, Duke of Lower Lorraine. Charles' main claim to fame at this time was that he was a traitor against his own house, having sided with the German Roman Empire in several wars against kings from his own family. As such, he was absolutely despised by the Frankish nobility. The other remaining Carolingian was a priest named Arnulf. Since Charles was hated, and Arnulf could not have legitimate heirs, the Carolingian line had absolutely no chance of getting the throne back at this point, which led to the election of Hugh Capet, who was a strong landowner and very popular, and, you know, the descendant of people who had been king. Everyone in the wider Christian aristocratic world basically accepted this, but everyone wanted some concession or another to grant their recognition. Notably, Emperor Otto II asked Hugh to give the priest Arnulf an important position as an olive branch to the supporters of the old Carolingian clan. Specifically, Otto requested that Hugh make Arnulf Archbishop of Rome, a position that carried with it the ability to crown kings of Francia. This was done, and basically, as soon as Hugh had left the room, Arnulf declared that his cousin, Charles of Lorraine, was to be the king and threw open the doors of Rome to Charles' invading forces. This ended up being a very close-run thing, but to cut a long story short, Hugh Capet managed to beat back Charles. This left the headache that the Archbishop of Rome, basically the French equivalent of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and a position a person holds for life, 
was being held by someone who had just started an existentially threatening war that didn't need to happen. Arnulf simply could not be trusted. So a synod of Frankish bishops were called who deposed Arnulf and elected a new archbishop named Gerbert, in the usual way that elections are done. Gerbert was a cleric from Rome, beloved among the clergy as a man of learning and science, and everyone in West Francia was happy with this choice. Most importantly, Gerbert never once in his life caused a stupid war for no reason by betraying his king to Charles of Lorraine, who everyone hated. I have to say, there are times when I feel like I'm not doing as much as I can for the world, you know? And at those times, I think I need to sit back, take a minute, and think that I, too, have never started a useless war by betraying anyone to Charles of Lorraine. Maybe I'm doing okay. Anyway, when Pope John XV heard about these events, he did not approve. He sent representatives to look into the matter and to hold a truly neutral council outside the domination of Hugh, a person many considered a usurper, after all. What this looked like in practice is that his new <clears throat> neutral council ended up being held just over the border in Germany and was made up of entirely German bishops, and thus discovered in a very neutral way that Arnulf, the favored candidate of Otto II, the former German Roman emperor, was absolutely innocent of high treason and that he was legally still the Archbishop of Rome. The French bishops responded with the famous quote that started this episode, a quote that has ended up labeling John as a notoriously corrupt individual down the years. I think a more fair critique of John's position would be that the Etonians had supported Arnulf from the word go, and they don't seem to have had the interests of peace and justice in mind, as it turns out. The fact that John probably spent his time alternatively quivering at the presence of Crescentius and then cowering in the presence of Theophanu probably indicates where his positions may have actually come from. All of which is to say that John probably was getting his foreign policy cues from the Etonians at this point, something which you can't really blame him for, but which certainly doesn't make him uncorrupt. At the same time, his position that uh, you couldn't just fire bishops for political reasons would sort of become orthodoxy later on. Nonetheless, this is a key example of the popes attempting to stand in the way of a European monarch dismissing and replacing a cleric. So watch this space. Ultimately, however, Hugh died before all this could really come to a head. His son, Robert the Amorous, didn't make things easy on himself, taking on several wives without sufficient annulment procedures. When combined with his continued support for Archbishop Gerbet, this resulted in an excommunication, which forced Robert to back down. As the second in the line of a new dynasty, Robert needed legitimacy, and the fight with the Pope was not helping him. Anyway, Charles of Lorraine was dead by this point, so the damage Arnulf could do was limited, and so Robert caved on the Archbishop question. Gerbert was sent to exile in Germany, where it turned out that the qualities that were so loved in West Francia were actually pretty impressive to the German Roman Empire as well. He was so impressed the German clergy that they recommended him as the tutor to the child king Otto III. This was in 996, give or take. Otto III was apparently 16 at this time, and was sort of taking control of his empire, more or less, but I guess he still needed a tutor. In the meantime, John XV died, an event as shrouded in silence as the entire rest of his rule. For whatever reason, child king Otto III and or his advisors once again decided to appoint the next pope, choosing his cousin, Bruno, who took the papal name of Gregory V. As Otto left and Gregory gave his first order, the Romans said, who does this guy think he is? I didn't vote for him. And things immediately went south. Or rather, Gregory fled north, as the city just elected their own pope, who was backed by the Crescenti. Gregory fled to Otto, who returned with his army and brutally retook Rome, 
hanging crescentius from the walls of Castle San Angelo, and having his pope's nose, tongue, ears, and eyes removed. A local saint proceeded to chastise the pope and the emperor for this brutality, at which point Otto apparently felt bad about the whole thing, and had the ex-pope put into a nice monastery, which I'm sure was hugely appreciated by the poor guy, who was essentially in a permanent sensory deprivation chamber at this point. The anti-pope lived another two years in the monastery before dying, which honestly at that point killed the guy. Not that this did Gregory any good, as he died less than a year after he and Otto retook the city. There is a suggestion of poison. It sort of doesn't matter, because at this time, Otto was still in the area, so if anyone thought they were going to get anything by poisoning Gregory, they, they didn't. Otto was able to just walk back into the city and direct the next election again, and he directed the election to appoint his supposed tutor, Gerbert, as Pope Sylvester II. I should just say that the entire timeline for this period is an absolute mess. Within one or two years, Hugh Capet, John XV, Otto II, and Gregory die. Meanwhile, Robert takes over as King of West Francia, Henry and Theophanu are fighting over a regency, and Otto III is gradually assuming power. I've had to go over my timeline like six times, and I'm only sort of sure that I, I'm right. So let me just summarize. In terms of the popes, we had John XIII, who was a stable reformer and was followed by Benedict VI, who was quickly killed and replaced by the anti-pope Boniface, who was ousted after a month and replaced by Benedict VII, who was fairly stable and banned simony. After he died, Otto II installed John XIV, who was Otto II's Italy expert. But then Otto dies, and the Romans killed John XIV, and anti-pope Boniface comes back for a few months before being beaten to death by an angry mob. John XV was subsequently elected by the Crescenti, but very quickly found himself under heavy oversight from Theophanu. He died, somehow, and was replaced by Gregory V by Otto's agents. Gregory was not accepted, had to be imposed by force, and then died soon after anyway. At that point, Sylvester II was made Pope via an election, albeit one that the Etonians manipulated. Is that a good summary? Podcast footnote. Antipope is a term for a pretender to the papal throne. I've honestly tried to avoid it because who is pope and who is antipope is really, really subjective and essentially is established entirely by later historians based on their own political viewpoint. But in this period in particular, the naming conventions just break down entirely if you don't clarify which antipope is which and the numbers get all messed up. Anyway, I'm trying my best, folks. I'm trying. End podcast footnote. So, Sylvester II, he was established by Otto as Pope. Otto III. Sylvester II is a Pope with a somewhat complicated legacy. Most historians view him kindly because he was something of a Renaissance man, albeit a few hundred years too early. He was an enthusiastic supporter of the scientific and philosophical works coming out of multicultural Spain at this time, and is credited with attempting to introduce everything from mechanical clocks to Arabic numerals. He comes off in his writings as a kindly and interesting person. In terms of the ongoing reform movement, he was strongly in favor of it. He took strong stances against simony and of priests living with concubines, an issue we need to address, but next episode I think this is already too much. However, he was also an imperial puppet, who was imposed on Rome essentially by force, and as such was hated by the Roman aristocracy. His scientific interests made it easy for these domestic enemies to brand him as a sorcerer or a heretic. In 1001, these efforts paid off, in a city and region-wide uprising against Otto III and Sylvester. Sylvester and Otto fled, and despite three attempts to retake the city, they never quite did. 
After Otto died in 1002, Sylvester found a way to return to the city, presumably by reaching an accommodation with the Crescenti family. And we're just going to leave it there for today in terms of the timeline. I think that's a good break. We've gotten through the end of Otto III. You'll note I am using the reigning monarchs of Germany to create the timeline here. That's just a convention. I'm not trying to imply that they're particularly necessarily important to what's... I mean, obviously, they're very important to what's going on in Rome, but the Romans wouldn't necessarily have dated things that way. It's just easier to break things up by the Etonians because they reigned longer. These popes are lasting for like a couple months. So that's the end for the narrative today, but I think it's important to take a few minutes to discuss just what we went over and try and figure out what it all means. Traditionally, there are, let's say, three ways this story is read. Those with a pro-German or pro-imperial viewpoint will emphasize that Otto I tried to work within the papal system, but found a papacy that was massively morally compromised by the local aristocracy. The accusations against John XII, if you believe them, clearly show an institution that was not serving the spiritual needs of the church as a whole. And as a Davidic king, it was Otto's duty to correct the abuses of the church and put it on the right path. As a Northern European monarch, he was used to doing this in religious institutions he controlled, manipulating religious institutions for the greater good. Otto I tried several times, put in place local compromise candidates, but these were rejected by the local aristocracy anyway. And so under Otto II, imperial policy settled on a policy of enforcing reform-minded northern clergy on the papacy in order to right the ship. This may, in fact, be how the Ottos saw things at some level. Otto I was extremely pious, but in a way that was very devoted to the idea of kingship in the mold of Charlemagne. Certainly, the majority of the surviving chroniclers are influenced by this viewpoint, given that they were all fully paid-up productions of the Etonian Renaissance. And this policy was generally followed by his successors. However, there are a few other ways to see this. Otto was building an empire. North of the Alps, assuming control of political and religious institutions was part of the process, and one that was conducted gradually but inexorably during Otto I's reign and that of his namesakes. Dukes were displaced in favor of family members. Bishoprics were likewise given to people who, if not immediate family, were at least members of the Etonian household. Otto moved carefully with the papacy, but nonetheless deliberately. Like any good feudal lord, he and his administration found examples of historical precedent they could use to gradually assume control, even if that precedent was long out of date. For example, the Eastern Roman emperors had appointed popes, or at least had hands in elections, and they had to be informed of elections. Well, wasn't Otto also an emperor? In the absence of any kind of legislative body regulating these kinds of relationships, and with papal precedents profoundly screwed up by the instability of the papacy itself, this was just how business was done in the Middle Ages. Otto picked the precedent he liked, went with it, and that became the legal standard, as long as his army was around. Standard concepts of legitimacy and morality just have a different moral valence when you're talking about the leaders of empires. After all, Otto I was invited into Italy by John XII. If Otto had just destroyed Berengar and left Italy without attempting to establish some kind of order, honestly, that would have been profoundly irresponsible. There needed to be some kind of order. So if Otto's attempts at centralizing power in Italy had resulted in a stable administration, even if it was arrived at by violating some of what we might comically call legitimate legal norms, that would have been a good outcome. A stable place is better than a chaotic one. This view certainly has a possibly cynical appeal to it, but has almost no support in terms of what the people at the time said about what was happening. It describes events without really explaining them. 
There is one more perspective, however, what we might call pro-papal or nativist Italian perspective. Whatever his moral qualities or failings as a leader, John XII was the legitimate leader of Rome and the inheritor of a legacy from both his spiritual role as pope and his secular role as the son of Alberico. While young, possibly out of his depth, and possibly morally rudderless, he was seen by many as legitimate and certainly represented a plurality of power within the city's aristocracy. Otto and his heirs' attempts to interfere in Rome consistently violated all sorts of norms and ignored a set of stable political institutions and settlements in such a way that they neither created nor stability nor established moral reform. The political consensus in Rome was built around the balancing of patronage amongst the aristocratic families of the city and was also based in a profoundly felt loyalty to the independence of the Roman Republic. This should have been a process that Otto recognized, but the patronage of Northern Europe was done with rewards of land and responsibility while the patronage of Rome came in the form of cash flows. This profound cultural difference may have interfered with Otto's ability to understand the system. Regardless, his efforts at reform failed to address this underlying de facto political machinery. His overturning of John XII violated important legal forms about the place of the Pope in the Roman legal system. The spectacle of a foreign power imposing decisions on Rome turned most of the aristocracy against Otto in such a way that even relatively reasonable candidates like Leo became seen as foreign puppets and unacceptable, because their selection was clearly done without consultation and was done in an arbitrary and capricious way. Even during the relatively stable and uncontroversial rule of John XIII, the political system of Rome was subject to massive externally-led changes that had seriously unforeseen consequences a process that Otto probably didn't even realize was happening. For Otto and his advisors, it looked like John XIII was putting in place imperial loyalists. In reality, he was pushing his own local agenda by raising up his own family, the Crescenti, in an event that ended up reflecting profound change of the guard between old and new aristocracies. Despite a profound investment of political, military, and financial resources, few to none of the Etonian popes built up a local power base that was sufficient to preserve their rule without Etonian troops. Conversely, this diversion of resources to the south was resented by the German aristocracy, the actual Etonian power base, you will understand, which led to growing resentment up north. In short, Etonian rule in Rome was an illegitimate, proto-colonial effort that benefited neither the Romans nor the German Roman Empire. That is certainly a perspective. In terms of my own perspective, in terms of what I actually think, I think there are some things about all three of these viewpoints that ring true. Otto very clearly violated norms in Rome in a way that did not create stability. That said, we've seen that the political consensus in Rome was not really stable anyway, with something as important as the selection of popes relying on apparently unwritten rules that changed constantly and had effectively resulted in a system of de facto rule by semi-official dictators. While norm-based systems without a written component have succeeded elsewhere in the world, Establishing them requires generations of stability and consistency that simply didn't exist in Rome. The local political system was an ever-evolving balance of power, a balance that arguably distracted popes from their confessional mission, or at least made sure people became pope for reasons that had more to do with local political expedience than their actual suitability or qualifications to hold one of the most important positions in Christendom. As a representative of the rest of Christendom, we can maybe admit that Otto had something to say about this. This kind of situation with the local Roman aristocracy was the very thing that the Cluniac reformers were trying to fight against. And from that point of view, the Etonians' actions could be seen as genuine attempts to solve a common problem. And Otto was already seen as fighting the good fight in Northern Europe in this regard. 
Sylvester II is a poignant example of a person who was profoundly qualified to be pope and who was prevented from doing as much good as he could have by local politics. There are a couple of caveats to this, of course. One of the qualifications to be pope is that you need to be able to rule the city of Rome. So even if you're a you know, Renaissance man, good person, theologian like Sylvester II, if you can't rule Rome, you're not a good pope. More importantly, this entire sort of nice interpretation of the Etonians' actions is given a bit of a lie by the situation with Archbishop Arnulf in West Francia, at least in my mind. While the stance of the papacy that religious leaders shouldn't simply be removed by secular leaders for reasons of political expediency would become a firm position and certainly has a moral weight to it, in a modern context, I'd be pretty upset if my rabbi was fired by the governor of Rhode Island. Archbishop Arnulf wasn't some earnest, long-standing leader of his community who took a moral political stand. He was a parvenu who used the secular powers of his spiritual position in order to commit an act of treason after a very short time in office. His actions seriously violated the spirit of the requirements of the office in order to forward his family's goals. His actions seem to have been cynically defended by the German Roman emperors via the papacy which they dominated. The records at that time emphasized the moral precedents involved, but to me it looks like this was done to prevent West Francia from consolidating as a potential threat under a new and energetic dynasty, or at least in the hope of putting the relatively friendly Charles of Lorraine onto the throne. Remember, Charles of Lorraine had been an ally of the Etonians. While the precedent of a politician firing a bishop would have been problematic from the church's standpoint, it's not like this was an established precedent either way at the time. There were certainly other bishops who were fired or removed, and there will be more in the future. And we're talking about a cleric whose first act was literally to commit treason. And it's not like he misplaced some documents or something in his warehouse. We aren't talking about some kind of light treason between friends. He literally allowed someone to take over his city who wanted to kill his king and combined his feudal knights with that person's feudal knights in an army of battle. If Arnulf had been a secular lord, he would have been hung from the city walls by some sort of vital organ. If Arnulf had been an archbishop in Germany and had pulled that kind of treason, he would have been deposed and exiled to a tiny parish church in whatever border town was most likely to result in his martyrdom by the Slavs. All of which is to say that the Ottos at the very least had their own dynastic political power somewhere in mind behind their actions. Whether or not they had reformist intentions, they were executed in a way that attempted to shore up their political power, but was not only wrong, it was ineffective. The biggest changes that occurred under the Etonian popes, such as the changeover between the old and new aristocracies, might have just happened anyway, as they represented ongoing economic and political changes within Roman society, but the autos really didn't help. Leaving the autos aside for a moment, what was motivating the Roman aristocracy? There may have been a strong sense of shared interest in the idea of an independent Roman republic opposed to outside domination. After all, as we've seen in these episodes, this idea of a Roman republic has sort of existed since before the Franks even got involved in Italy. And certainly under the long rule of Alberic II, uh, this was something that was reinforced. But that feeling of loyalty didn't prevent the various families involved from working with the Etonians at some level when it helped them secure their own ends, namely controlling the patronage and forwarding the interests of their own clan. In this context, the imposition of outside candidates may have been a genuine attempt by the Etonians to bring in impartial arbiters, or to put in place loyal leadership, and at certain points it seems to have started working? 
Unfortunately, the process seems to have just left the local aristocrats feeling that they'd been locked out of access to patronage. Suddenly, they were going to be forced to compete for resources, not just with each other, but also with imperial officials brought in from the outside. This eventually caused them to close ranks and resist the outside threat. Needless to say, I have trouble sorting how I feel about the motivations of the people involved in all this. I think that is because all of the above viewpoints and ideas were true for somebody. I think it's dangerous to disregard the ideology of the Etonians. It explains too much about the details of their choices. For example, if you want to say the Etonians were only engaged in cynical power politics, the papacy of Sylvester II makes absolutely no sense. He wasn't some German sycophant. He wasn't someone who would have uh, really stabilized things for the Etonians. He was a West Frankish clerical administrator that had been a major political opponent of the Etonians at one time. His selection as the Etonian candidate for Pope shows that the Etonians were genuinely interested at some level in finding what they saw as good candidates for Pope, people who were well-educated, intelligent, and religiously orthodox, while also being in favor of the kinds of religious reforms the Etonians were supporting in Germany. That said, it's also clear that the Etonians were very interested in annexing northern Italy into their empire, and the church was part of that process in Italy as it was in Germany. They took actions that increasingly infringed political norms in Rome in order to get power over political institutions, and used that power on several occasions to forward the interests of the empire at the expense of the rest of Christendom. The aristocrats in Rome were hardly Italian national heroes. While I'm deeply suspicious of the frenzied depictions of corruption and sexual depravity assigned to them and their popes by the northern commentators, we are basically talking about a bunch of organized crime families. The Roman militias were horrifically incapable militarily. Their only value seems to have been in beating up civilians and forming angry mobs to assassinate rivals in a variety of unnecessarily awful ways. Their loyalty to Rome was entirely subservient to their loyalty to their own family faction. The fact that they so consistently opposed the Etonians suggests to me more that the Etonians profoundly misunderstood the local political consensus than some sort of idealism and loyalty amongst the aristocrats. While the aristocratic popes were not generally as awful as they are portrayed, at best, they really didn't do much. But then it's also somewhat anachronistic to expect much different. I think the fact that the Etonians failed to secure stable rule in Rome is the key interesting thing. Disregarding everything else, they failed. It's tempting to say that this failure was inevitable, that they had overreached in attempting to secure Rome, or that the cultures were just too different. I think that's true, but it's also too simplistic. For me, what I think happened here is that there is a synchronous effect of sort of all of these and other issues. The Etonians were operating at the end of a long communications lines in a feudal state without a bureaucracy, so their information of local conditions was deeply imperfect. The culture was very different, so they didn't understand the specifics of the system, namely that cash patronage ruled in Rome instead of land patronage, but that they did basically the same things. We should also remember that the Etonian bureaucracy, such as it was, was staffed by clerics who may have taken a moralizing approach to the reports they sent back to the autos. A key obsession of the Chronicles is reporting how the Roman system was characterized by bribery. The Pope was shown as having bought loyalty, or having his mind changed by money. This is seen as crass and immoral, but in the German political system, nobles were consistently brought to the king's side by land grants, and church elections were swayed by pious gifts. Cash didn't necessarily change hands, but a different kind of currency did. The fact that cash transactions and not land transactions are condemned in the Bible may have had a hand in shaping the northern viewpoint, or at least in justifying the existing cultural bias, but we don't need to follow along with that bias ourselves. 
It's possible that over time, these cultural misunderstandings of the Italian status quo, as reported by the clergy, caused the Ottos to resort to more and more moralizing reforms, seeing corruption as the key issue rather than a need for political stability or cultivated loyalty. Rather than attempting to divide and rule using patronage, which is a process that the Etonians were perfectly capable of doing in Northern Europe, the Etonians came to see the problem moralistically and thought that spiritual correction was the key need. In the short term, the results of this Etonian policy was a profound failure. They were never able to establish truly stable rule because they neither worked with the existing system, nor did they have the power to uproot it. By the time of Otto III's death, the German Roman Empire had physically lost control of their own republic, a fact that I consider profoundly embarrassing given the uselessness of the Roman militias. The Roman chroniclers spun these events as hard as they could, but from my point of view, the reality is that Rome was Otto's fight to lose, and they lost it. We will return to these narrative frameworks in future episodes and reflect back on the Etonians again as we go on. Much of what is going to happen starts here, but its importance is only clear in hindsight in many cases. Nonetheless, I think we covered a ton of ground today, and I'm pretty happy with the result. I hope you are too. Over the next episode or two, we will continue our speedrun of the papacy and lead up to Gregory VII as we move ever closer to the eruption of the investiture controversy. But for now, all that remains is for me to remind you to check out the website, remember to get your tickets to Intelligent Speech, and of course, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.